to see you this morning. This Labor Day weekend, we can uh, celebrate the, the labor and what we, we can work. I want to, first of all, introduce or welcome the visitors who are there with us today. If you would like to do so, if you'd be so kind to uh, fill out a, a visitor's card just in the front of the, the pew there. Just fill it out. We have an offering box in the back. Uh, you can uh, fill it out. We'll follow up however you would like us to follow up, whether he wants to visit you, call you, do nothing. That is just fine. If you could do that, that would be wonderful. It's a way to help us record your visit and to welcome you. Um, secondly, just want to uh, remind you all, small groups are going to begin again. Uh, for those of you visiting again, this is a great way to be involved in the church, just a smaller group of people. Um, we don't have all the details. I don't, I don't have them in terms of where people are, are meeting and what groups are, are meeting, but it would be much the same as last year. Uh, I'll put that out in the weekly word. You'll be able to get that. Uh, coming up, would encourage you to be involved and engaged in that. Well, let me pray for our, our time in the Word this morning. Lord, I, I am very aware that I'm a, a mere man, God formed to the dust of the ground, and that, God, Your Word is, is life. It is the very Word of God. It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and God, apart from your, your spirit, though coming at this moment, that sword is a, is a blunt and dull sword. God, but with your spirit coming, it is a, a sharp sword to, to pierce deep into our hearts and to encourage us in the gospel. God, to give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear. And so, Lord, I, that's what I pray right now, that you would, God, help this time where we just open Your Word and explain it and understand it. I pray that Your Word would come through powerfully into each of our lives, that we would see You afresh. And Lord, that we would, um, God, really respond. I was challenged in prayer meeting today, this morning, as Darren asked, how, how, how has the Word changed you this past week in a tangible way? God, I confess how hard it is to think of ways. And so, Lord, I pray even today, right now, that there would be something said that could affect us, that we could apply this week on the basis of what you have said in your word. So, so come, Lord Jesus, and help this to be a time in which we are, are uh, encouraged by your word, which we're drawn to Jesus, and which you are totally exalted. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the calendar of the Jewish... Uh, Life. There are several feasts in which they, they keep, according to the Old Testament. Uh, three of those feasts are the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And, and at these particular feasts, there's a, a section of the Psalter which is read in many synagogues across our land. They've been read for centuries, even millennia. Um, even ever since Moses brought forth the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, the Jews have celebrated the Passover. And they, they celebrated the harvest. They, they celebrated the Feast of Booths to continue to remind them of what took place in the Exodus. And, and there are these Psalms. Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, 117, 118. These six Psalms together form what is known as the Egyptian Hallel. The praise of coming out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And these Psalms are, are read often in the Jewish flavor of their, their calendar year. And so this morning, it's our privilege to look at the first of the Egyptian Psalms, Psalm 113. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open 
to Psalm 113. In the past few weeks in the summer, we've been just looking at various psalms. And there's been a pattern in, in recent weeks about these psalms. These psalms have all begun with praise and ended with praise. We looked at Psalm 103, which began, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. And it ended in verse 22, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 105 we looked at. It began with a call to give thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon His name. And it ends in verse 45 with a simple praise the Lord. And we looked at Psalm 106. It begins with a call to praise. Praise the Lord. It ends with a similar refrain in Psalm 106, verse 48. Praise the Lord. And we didn't look at Psalm 104 this time. I preached on that several years back, so we skipped that psalm. But it was a call to praise as well. Psalm 104, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And it ends with, in verse 56, Praise the Lord. Well, our psalm this morning is, is similar. It, it begins with praise and it ends with praise. Look right there, verse 1, Praise the Lord. And verse 9, how it ends. Praise the Lord. This is Alleluia. That word that is the same in, in every language. Hallel to praise Yah, the Lord. And, and maybe we could call these sandwich psalms. Beginning with praise and ending with praise. And in the middle we have meat. And in every instance, the meat is the reason for the bread. In other words, we, we praise the Lord, we thank the Lord, we give honor to His name, we bless Him because of everything in the middle of the psalm. Psalm 103, it's the, the blessings that God has given to us that call us to praise the Lord. In Psalm 104, it is the, the marvelous wonders of His creation that calls us to praise the Lord. In Psalm 105, it's the faithfulness of God it calls us to praise the Lord. And in Psalm 106, it's the compassion of God. So remember, a couple weeks ago, we were the objects of His mercy. And here in Psalm 113, it is the care of God. He is high and lofty and exalted, but He still cares for us. You see, our God is no indifferent deity who sits on His throne in heaven, oblivious to everything taking place here on earth, not caring for His people. No, on the contrary, though God is high and exalted and lifted up, he not only knows what's going on in our lives, He cares for us and He helps us in our trouble and our distress. You know, this past week at Kids Club, these are kids from the neighborhood who come, come by Tuesdays and Thursdays after school. One of the children said, Pastor Steve, is Zeus, are Zeus and Thor real gods? And uh, I answered this precious child, I said, no. And she said, well, my uncle says that they are. And I said, well, they, they're not real. And this precious child seemed to be disappointed with that fact. But that kind of gives you an insight of some of the things I deal with on Tuesdays and Thursdays with these kids, just trying to ingrain in them and amidst the homes in which they're troubled in many ways, just to explain to them what the real God is. And it just so happened that one of the stories we're reading was the story of the prophets of, of Baal and Elijah. In fact, I have a, a picture right here. This is the... The Gospel Storybook Bible from which we, which we read. I think i got a picture coming up there, Rich, right? Yeah, here is the, the prophecy. But if you don't own this book, parents, I would encourage you to get this book. We, we read through about, uh, we try about three stories every Tuesday and three stories every Thursday. Um, and we just teach them about the kids. And what's great about this, it tells the stories of the Bible, but it always points you to Christ. It's always pointing to Jesus. It's always pointing to the gospel. Well, the story we read here was a great opportunity to reply to this child who thought that Zeus and Thor were real. Remember the, the prophets of Baal, 850 of them 
battled against Elijah. Says Elijah says, "Okay, well, let's make this let's make this challenge. Right? Let's build two altars, put oxen upon it, put wood underneath it, and and you call to Baal, your god, and see if he answers by fire. And then I'll call to my god and see if he answers by fire." And of course, you remember the the prophets of Baal spent all day crying, crying out loud, what what they could, cutting themselves, and, and one of the most Funny stories in all the Bibles when Elijah's there mocking the prophets of Baal. He says, well, where's Baal? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you should shout louder. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. That's what it says. He's relieving himself, maybe. And, and then nothing happened. And then at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah said, let's take this altar and let's drench it with water. And they drenched it with water so much so that this, this moat, that he had, this ditch that he had dug around the altar filled up. To the full. So this, this socking, the sopping wet ox is upon this altar. And Elijah prayed to his God. He said this, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And while he's still praying, right, the fire came down from heaven and consumed Elijah's altar. Just consume, even water and all, lapped up all the water that was right there in the altar itself. And, and I, I was able to tell this child, I said, this is the contrast between Thor and Zeus, these imaginary gods who are really no gods at all. And our God, our God is great and powerful and lofty. He can cause fire from heaven to come down and consume an altar. And yet he cares enough for Elijah that he would hear his cry and answer him because he's a, he's a good God. So I trust as I read Psalm 113, you'll see these two themes of the, the transcendence of God and the imminence of God. Psalm 113, verse 1, Bless, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, yet humbles Himself to behold the things in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Well, our psalm breaks down thematically into three sections. Each has three verses, verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and 7 through 9. And my first one is verses 1 through 3. My first point of my message this morning is simply a call to praise the Lord. Notice how many times these first three verses were called to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's, let's account them as we read them, right? Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. That's five times in these three verses that God's name is to be praised and lifted up. Notice how three times even the name of the Lord is, is mentioned. Right? It says there, verse, at the end of verse 1, pray, blessed, praise the name of the Lord. Verse 2, blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 3, the, the name of the Lord is to be praised. It's just a, a poetic way of, of, of saying God Himself. Let, let His name be exalted. That is, let, let God and His, His beauty and His reputation be exalted above all. 
And we see from these verses, it says that God is to be praised at all times and in all places. At all times, verse 2, from this time forth and forever. It's like saying, from now on, I don't care what's happened before, from now on, God's name is to be praised. It's a little bit like Paul in Acts 17 when he said that God overlooked the time of ignorance, but now He's declaring to all men that all everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He's appointed, having raised Him from the dead. He's just saying, right, from this time forth and forever, let the name of the Lord be praised. And not only just at all times, in all places. That's the idea of the rising of the sun. Verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its setting. The rising in the east, the setting in the west. So I don't care if you live on the east coast or in the Middle East. The name of the Lord is to be praised. I don't care if you live on the west coast or in the West Indies. The name of the Lord is to be praised everywhere. So I simply ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing at all times and in all places praising the Lord? what God calls us to do. This is God's expectation for your life. And this is what God demands of everybody, right? Is, is submission to Him. But especially of His children. Uh, look there in, in verse 1. This is a call to servants of the Lord. Remember Psalm 103? It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me. Bless His holy name. He was calling Himself. This one He's calling others. He's saying, you servants of the Lord, if you say, yes, I'm a servant of the Lord, I've bowed my knee to King Jesus, I am serving Him, then this is your call to praise God at all times, in all places. Now, of course, you just think about practically, how does this work? All times and in all places. It means wherever we are, we need to praise the Lord. Whether it's eating or drinking, like I mentioned last week, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God whether it is at work, is to worship the Lord. Now, when you're alone, or maybe in your car, or maybe at church, it can be done in singing, but it also can take, take place in speaking to one another, say, after our service, when you have opportunity to speak with each other, just the, the words you say should give glory and honor to God. But this must take place when you do your activity, right? when you're walking about, when you're driving, when you're reading, or maybe you're running, wherever you are, God's name is to be praised. And, and that, that could take forms in front of the Grand Canyon, just seeing the awe and the wonder of that. You can just, just whisper a sigh of awe. What a wonderful, magnificent God we serve. Or even as mundane as maybe children doing your homework, reading your biology book. Right, Hannah? You read your biology book and just say, wow, what an amazing God we have who, who created life and, and fits life together in this process. Take place when you're working, right? You work to the glory of God. You, you nail on the siding to the glory of God. Right? You, you type and do your emails and communication to the glory of God. Or you teach your students, Ryan, to the glory of God. You know, I fear that too often we aren't thinking about this. This requires us constantly to think about this. We are, as Tozer said, practical atheists. Living as if God doesn't exist. Just kind of carrying through our life. Not thinking about how all our life in every time and every way needs to praise the Lord. And Sunday mornings, we try to cultivate a flavor that should be true throughout your weeks. Next Sunday is going to be a little bit different. We've had several services in the past of a, a praise and a prayer service. An opportunity where we're not just going to sing some songs, hear somebody 
uh, read scripture, pray and hear the word proclaimed, which are all, all good things. We're going to really ask you to be more participatory next week um, to uh, to pray and to come ready as we want to grow in our idea of what what worship is. Be more active, be able to to come praying, be able to come and, and give a testimony of of praise to God and what God is, is doing in your life or sharing some of the troubles I'm going to call some of you this week even and, and give some of you a short assignment just to share the way that God is working in your life. It's a great time of the year. It's, 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 the, it's the fall. It's the beginning of the school year, right? We're kicking off the school year, right? We're kicking off for small groups. It's a time for us to come and, and really engage our hearts at worshiping the Lord. A couple smaller, shorter talks were just to prompt us to be genuine worshipers. And my, my prayer for our church is that we would be genuine worshipers who really do all times, every place is one through three praising the Lord. Well, let's go to the second point. Okay, this is not only praise the Lord verses one through three, but second point, four through six, that he is high and exalted. In fact, that's the point. Listen, high. Listen, listen for words like high and exalted. Verse four, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who's like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things in heaven and on earth? In other words, he's so high above that he needs to humble himself to see what's going on here. Right? I mean, one theme picks up right here. He's higher than nations. The glory above the heavens. He's throned on high. And he has to stoop in order to see things on earth. That's our God. It's the reason why we praise the Lord, right? This is the meat section, right? The, the sandwich is the bread, but the meat section here is this, that God is high and exalted. And being high and exalted we are, uh, gives us reason to praise the Lord. It's reminiscent of uh, Isaiah 6. Do you remember that passage? Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, verse 1 and 2, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple, and seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The, the, the Lord is high and exalted and worthy to be worshipped. But here's what I, I want you just to think about how high God is. You know, we in the 21st century, we have much greater opportunity than uh, those of when the psalm was written because we know what it looks like. Above the nations. I know most of you have flown in an airplane. And when you're in an airplane, you get a perspective that the psalmist did not have. And what do you see when you look out your window? We're going to go for a little quiz, okay? Quiz to see how good you are. we got some pictures here. And i got the city. Who can name this city here? San Francisco. Okay, there's the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge. And so we're going to... By the way... Uh, oh, 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 oh. I asked my wife to marry me right in the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge over there on the right. So it's a very special place for us. She said yes. <laughs> We've married 22 years. So wonderful years. Okay. So these are easy, easy. Okay. San Francisco is real. Okay. Let's, let's go this one. Go next one. What's that one? Chicago. Gorgeous, huh? See, again, this is how God views, right? The Lord is above all nations. He, he's above. Okay. Next city. Ooh, this one's tough. What? Alaska. Ketchikan clothes probably looks about like Ketchikan. This one actually is Skagway, but I'll give you full credit for Ketchikan, okay? Alaska. All right, let's next one. 
Jerusalem, right? The Dome of the Rock, just, just right there. Next one. Paris. How do you know it's Paris, Stephanie? The Eiffel Tower, good. Okay, they're getting harder now. Hmm. Kathmandu. This is exactly... I mean, do you see how... What a mess that place is. Uh, in fact, by the way, you can pray for me. I'm going to be flying in there in about seven weeks or so. I just purchased tickets this week to go train pastors there. Um, but that is just how it looks, and it is a mess. And so we'll get later in the, the psalm. It says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. It is dusty, and it is an ash heap in Kathmandu. And that, that, when, when God it says He's above the nations, that's, that's God's view of us right there. But it's not, it's not really accurate because the next phrase, right there in verse 5, right? It says, His glory, verse 4, it says, His glory is above the heavens. So let's, let's maybe back off a little bit. Let's, the next phrase, where, where is this taken from? And what's that a picture of? It's a space station. And, and what's it looking on? Italy and the boot. Okay, this one's a little tougher. Go ahead, this next one. Where's that? Who's got it? Huh? Egypt. And that's the Nile. All the, the life towards the Nile. And so this is, this is closer to God's view, but, but we're, we're still not there yet. We think about God's view because God is above the heavens, so He's, he's higher than this. So let's go to the next slide. This is um, as seen from the moon. This is more what, what God looks like when he, he sees us. That's from the moon, and, and, and there we are on the star. But actually, you know, we can do better than that. I told you a couple of weeks ago, Voyager 1, the spacecraft launched in 1977 to study the outer solar system. Traveling, and I made a mistake last time, it's traveling 10 miles per second. 10 miles per second is traveling that sum 325 million miles a year. And uh, in, in, it took about 13 years in, um, or maybe yeah, 13 years, 1990, Voyager was kind of near the end of its mission as it was nearing the outer planets. And so NASA commanded the, the, plo- the probe as it was traveling away from the Earth to, to turn around and take pictures of the planets. It was fearful that the sun might even destroy the camera. So they kind of took the other planets first and then said, said look back at the Earth and take a picture of the earth from 3.7 billion miles. Here's a picture of the earth. You see it? You see it? You think you see it? Okay, let's go to the next slide and that that that's right there. That's that's like a pixel. And this is the best resolution that we had at that point. Just a teeny teeny pixel. In fact, that has been called the pale blue dot. You can just look that up on the internet, pale blue dot. This is a famous picture from there. That's how God sees us because He exalted above the heavens. But, but that's not even quite real either as well because God is higher than the edge of our solar system. It's not like you, you got Pluto out there and God just God's house is right beyond Pluto because God is, is beyond that. So here's a, here's the next picture. Okay, this is this is what's called what's that called again? It's, it's the Milky Way 
And by the way, this isn't the real picture. This is just cataloging all the stars that we have and kind of putting them in there and then maybe interpolating uh, the hundreds of billions of stars that we have. But, but this is the best guess of what we have. What our, this is a scientific uh, uh, recreation of it from an angle how the Milky Way would look like on top. And, and our solar system is, is less than a pixel in, in, in here. And so when God is high above the heavens, that's, that's how, Wait, that, that's not quite that's not quite real either, um, because our galaxy has hundreds of billions of galaxies, and even God is is beyond that and outside of that. And one of one of my favorite things in uh, in astronomy is the Hubble Space Telescope. In 1990, it was put into orbit, and it's given us some spectacular views of the universe. But I think of, of all the pictures we've seen, the ones that I find most interesting are the ultra deep field pictures. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope has taken. So th- this thing's out rotating around the Earth. We don't have all the noise pollution. And what scientists have done have pointed the telescope towards the, the darkest portions of the night sky. It says, where is it the darkest? Okay, there's the darkest. And, and let's focus in just as far as we can into the darkest regions of, of the solar system, of the universe, and this is what we see. Each of those dots are like Milky Way galaxies. The bigger ones are closer. The tiny ones are just further away. Now you've got other things in here, globular clusters and nebula and all that kind of stuff. But that's what it looks like in the deepest, darkest recesses of the smallest sliver of our our night sky. This is what God sees when He looks at us. So, so picture one of those galaxies out there. Picture that, the Milky Way. And from God's throne, He sees hundreds of billions of galaxies. And many of those galaxies have hundreds of billions of stars. Maybe some have trillions. Certainly some do. <clears throat> Each star in all those galaxies called by name God has marked off the heavens with a span that's, that's from thumb to, to finger. That's half a cubit. Okay? Nine inches. That's how God views not just this little portion of the deep field, but, but all of creation. That's how he, he feels. And, and that's why verse 5 asks this question, right? Who is like the Lord our God enthroned on high? There is nobody like our God, who is above and beyond this and is far more incomprehensible than any of us could ever imagine. In fact, you know, we just, let's just leave that up for the rest of my message. I just want you to be reminded of the transcendence of God. Transcendence means that <clears throat> He is above and transcends where we are on the earth. So high is He above us. Zeus and Thor are not like our God. And now I, I trust you can understand the, the magnitude of verse 6 because as, as big as verse 5 is, verse 6 is big in reverse. Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on earth? Right? Who's like the Lord our God who's enthroned on high and yet He humbles Himself to behold things in heaven and on earth? In other words, 
for God to see anything taking place on our earth, He has to stoop low. He has to stoop low just to see the Milky Way in the night sky. He has to stoop lower yet just to see the the sun in the Milky Way. He needs to stoop lower yet just to see the earth as a pale blue dot. And he has to stoop lower yet to see the, the cities of the earth. He needs to stoop lower yet to see any of us. And he needs to stoop lower yet to know what's going on in our lives and to care for us and to help us. That is the humility of God that though he's exalted, right, he humbles himself to behold things in heaven and on earth. Now, I think here's the thing is we, we might just take it for granted that God stoops low to see us. I mean, we're so self-centered that we think that we're the center of the universe. I hope these pictures help show you that we are not the center of the universe. In fact, that's my hope, uh, persuaded that our little walk to the edge, outer edge of the universe might persuade us otherwise. Because in the grand scope of, of things, we are less than nothing and meaningless. In fact, that's exactly what Isaiah says. Isaiah 40, verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded as less than nothing and meaningless. Like a speck of dust on the scales. That's all the nations. And so we are less than a speck of dust on the scales. This morning, I want you to catch the wonder of Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Really, I mean, who are we that we should be the object of God's attention? But God has been mindful of us. He does care for us. And He is present in our lives. Theologians call this imminence. Imminent, meaning re- remaining in. That, that God is, is in the creation. He is within us. He, he is involved in our lives. He knows what's going on in our lives. And that's the, my title this morning, right? Transcendent and imminent. That yes, God is exalted above everything, but He is imminent that He is near us and with us and cares for us. He is a very presence in our lives. It's a great reality of Jesus. Not only has Jesus stooped to look, he stooped to become one of us, physically present with us. Remember Philippians 2? How Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, beholding pictures like that of the universe at all times, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It took Jesus Christ's great humility just to look at the earth. But not only did he look, but he, he became one of us. And what do we do with him? We killed him. We hung him on a tree. Let him die a slow and painful death. Thanks for creating us, Jesus. Such is our hatred towards God. Such is sin. But God's marvelous plan of redemption is the death of Jesus means our life because His death was substitutionary for us. It was His death for our sins. He died in our place. Our sin deserved punishment, but God came to, to take that punishment. We simply need to believe in Christ 
and trust in Him. And our sins are forgiven and they are wiped away. They are taken away, never to rise in accusation against us again. That's the Gospel. It's the glories of the Gospels that God cares for us. He entered into creation and He died for our sins that we might come to know Him. How blessed we are that our transcendent God has, has come to be with us. So I want you to think now about the Passover when Jesus was celebrating that Last Supper with His disciples. And they probably read, this is some conjecture, but they probably read Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Can you imagine Jesus sitting there? Who's like the Lord our God, who's enthroned on high, but humbles himself to behold things in heaven and on earth. And in fact, even humbles himself to wash you, your feet and to eat with you and to die for you. The disciples missed it. And I think what could have gone through Jesus' mind Reading this psalm. These people don't understand. And I just say, church family, do you understand? Are you like those disciples who've missed it? Do you understand the humility of our God to come and, and die for us? Well, let's turn to my third point, and it kinda kinda continues this theme from verse six through seven through eight, not only is he high and exalted, verses 4 through 6, but he helps the humble. Verses 7 through 9, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in a house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. In these verses, we see God raising the humble. They may be poor and in the dust, verse 7. They may be needy and in the ash heap, verse 7. They may be barren and childless, verse 9. But in each instance, God takes these lowly people and He raises them up in their distress. He helps them. He either lifts them up, is what verse 8 says, or He blesses them with children, what verse 9 says. And the general principle is this. It's all about the Bible. That God looks with favor upon the humble. He looks with favor upon those who are distressed. Right? When Jesus looked out upon the multitudes and they were distressed, the sheep without having a shepherd, He felt compassion for them. God has compassion for the lowly. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where's a place that I may rest? For my hand, God says, made all these things. Thus all these things came into being. I'm high and exalted. I created everything. Heaven's my throne. Earth is merely my footstool. What are you people going to do? Build for me. And then he says this, but to this one I will look, not to the one who builds him a great house, not the one who does great things for him in the fame of his name. This one I will look, who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. It's these two themes again, right? God creates everything, but he looks with favor upon those who are humble. Contrite of spirit, that means hating your sin. Broken in spirit. Pleading to the Lord. Isaiah 55, 57 verse 15 says the same thing. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And also with a contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of a lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Uh, again, God is high, but He dwells on high, and He dwells with the lowly. God doesn't just dwell with the, the middle path, middle class, the hoi polloi. He, 
He dwells with the lowly, those who are contrite of heart, those who hate their sin and crying to Him for mercy and know that they are dust and ashes themselves and, and need all strength from God. As James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, everyone loves a Cinderella story. March Madness comes around, you love those smaller teams who come and, and win some kind of great game. Or a Cinderella story, when someone comes out of nowhere to do something great, Abraham Lincoln, loved by all. Born in a one-room cabin in rural Kentucky, he was the first one in his family to learn how to read. And yet he arose to be President of the United States of America and exerted great leadership in trying to lead us through the Civil War. Herbert Hoover has a similar story. A few years ago, our family visited his birthplace coming back from California on our trip right in, in Iowa. I forget what town that was in. Do you remember the town? I don't know the town. Some, some town in Iowa. We had all these small towns in, in Iowa. The Herbert Hoover Presidential Library is there and it kind of shows, I think, the very house in which he was born. Two-room cottage in Iowa. There were Quakers. Showed the church in which they would meet and seek the Lord. Nothing remarkable about his upbringing, yet he became a self-made millionaire who rose to the presidency. And if you look, these stories are all around. And in the Bible, there are some, some stories of those poor and needy who rose to great prominence. Think Joseph comes to my mind initially. and He rose from humble beginnings to be second in command in Egypt. And when you think about Egypt and Bible times, think about the United States of America, the most powerful nation on the planet because of the Nile River and because of the, the prosperity they had. They could build those um, pyramids because they had the wealth to build those pyramids. And his family had some measure of wealth, right, possessing flocks and herds, but when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, none of that came in to help. Right? And even in Egypt, shepherds were despised. That's why they settled the land of Goshen, away from the Egyptians. Right? Okay, you shepherds, we don't like shepherds. You're out there. And his wealth didn't help him when he was sold into slavery. But God had a plan. God sent Joseph ahead to save Israel. And the path to prominence was down and then up. Because he went down. He was wrongly accused. Wrongly imprisoned. Forgotten by those who made promises to him to tell the, the governor to get him out of jail when he interpreted their dreams. But God was with Joseph those many years. I forget how many. 14, 17, 19 years he was in prison, I forget, a long time he went through the valley before he was ascended to vice president. And the Bible clearly says that it was God who raised him up to be Lord of all Egypt. Genesis 45, 8 and 9. And indeed, God raised him up to sit with princes. Or David, think about him. He too was a shepherd from the lowly city of Bethlehem, which Micah 5.2 says it's too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's like a, a, a little town that is hardly even worth noting. It was Bethlehem. David was the youngest of his brothers. When Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel, he said, Jesse, come, I want to anoint one of your sons. And, and Jesse said, okay, I'm going to gather my sons. And Jesse gathered seven his seven oldest sons, not even thinking about David, the, the little pipsqueak who was out there shepherding the sheep. And Samuel went through every single one of the sons and God said, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. Do you have any more? Oh, there's one more, but surely he's not the one because he's a little guy way out there. Well, I'm not going to sit down until he comes. And so they, they brought him back and indeed David was the one. 
the one whom God raised up to be king of Israel, the one to whom God said, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler of my people Israel. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. This is Second Samuel 7, by the way. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. He took this little poor shepherd boy and raised him from the dust and from the needy and he sat with princes, with the princes of his people. So much so that David, the Davidic throne, last through eternity. That's what God does. He takes lowly people and He raises them up. And the truth to be known, the story of David in some regard is the story of all of us. See, the path in the kingdom begins, into the kingdom of God begins low. We, we don't come into the kingdom because of our merits and accomplishments. Joseph or David, they didn't come because of their accomplishments and ability. No, we come humble and repentant over our sin. We come on our knees pleading for mercy at the cross. And what does God do? God lifts us up. And God adopts us into His family. According to Romans 8.17, that we are made joint heirs with Christ. That means that, that Christ, as Christ, will inherit the whole universe. So we also, with Him, as fellow brothers, will inherit the entire universe. It's called the inheritance. The Bible speaks much about the inheritance. We'll inherit the kingdom and we will rule and reign as priests forever. Listen to Revelation 1. To Him, Jesus, who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. Jesus loved us. <clears throat> he released us, forgiving us. And He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I think the idea there of priests is that we'll be able to go directly to God and we will commune with God as a priest does on behalf of people. And Revelation 5, 9 and 10, Worthy are you, the Lamb of God, to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. See, we, every believer in Christ has come up from the dust, and God has raised us up to this great position which we have worked nothing for. But it all, all begins with a a humble heart. It's really a point of application. In your, is your heart humble? Do you have a humble, lowly path to God? You want to be used of God? The way to be used of God is down. It's used faith with a little, be faithful in much. And God says, are you going to be faithful with a little? God says, how do you look at your own sin? Is there pride in your heart? And I just say, church family, seek His face upon your knees and trust the Lord to accomplish great things through you. Jeremiah 45, verse 5, Are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. Rather, Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Here's what God requires of every single one of us. To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God calls us to. A humble life before the Lord that just serves and waits for Him to, to bring us up. And that's the, the picture here of verse 7, right? Re raising the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. You know, ashes in the time of Israel were often used for repentance. You know, when Job was afflicted, he went out on the ash heap and he put ashes on his head. They covered themselves with sackcloth. Right? He, he's taken the, the lowly, the repentant, who's 
dumping ashes on themselves, a sign of, of repentance. And God will lift us up to, to reign in the future. But, but this isn't just an eschatological future thing. There, there are ways that God raises the lowly now. <clears throat> Look again at verse 9. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. You know, few things in this life are more painful than a barren womb. Proverbs 30, 15, and 16 says it this way. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Sheol, just the grave. We're all dying. It says, I need more. I need more bodies. I need more bodies. I need more people to die. Come on, keep coming. Keep bringing them. I'm not satisfied. It's not like, it's not like the ground ever fills up with dead people. That's what it says. And so likewise, the barren womb says, I need a child. I need a child. I need a child. It just won't be satisfied till that child comes. Earth that is never satisfied with water, right? You put water on the earth, it just keeps soaking down. Right? It just keeps soaking down, soaking down. And fire that never says enough. Fire that keeps on raging. And Whatever you put in there, it's going to keep on raging. Such is the picture of the barren womb that will not be satisfied. You know, I have a friend who uh, I spoke with this week who told me of the blessing of verse 9 in his life. Both he and his wife were in their 30s when they got married and so they're kind of getting a little older and wondering about children. And um, she was, was pregnant. And uh, when she was seven months along, a baby died in her womb. She had to give birth to a, a stillborn child in the hospital. And then just even, even asking, well, we have a child. And, and it became a huge test in, in her life, just about children. And what, what another? What, what about this child that, that has died? And... And Psalm 113, my friend says, was as a comfort to the soul. But it's interesting how verse Psalm 113, he told me, became a comfort. It, it, it's not so much about the barren woman who is going to have children, but it's more the whole psalm and the flavors, we said, about the, the care and the kindness and the help of God, that he, he raises the poor from the dust as we're, it's what God does. And so as we are poor and needy and helpless and crying out to God, God will care for us and help us. See, because so often God has given children to barren women. You just think about Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Manoah's wife who gave birth to Samson and Hannah and Elizabeth. All these women were explicitly barren in the Bible and they all it's God who gave them children. And that's what Psalm 113 says about the faithfulness, the kindness of God to show His grace. And it's the psalm, as they went over the psalm, a friend and his wife, and just reflect upon the goodness of God. This really came to minister to them because they said, well, yes, we're being crushed and we are, we are low and we are, are needy. But when you're poor and needy, you're like in the perfect place for God. I have another pastor friend of mine who I remember meeting together with him and he says that the, the phrase I keep pounding with our congregation is poor and needy, poor and needy, poor and needy, poor and needy. That's who we are. That's who we need to be. Because when you're poor and needy, you're open for God to help you. And, and my friend, the Lord has since blessed them with two boys. God has shown them favor. And that's a clear message for us this morning, right? Do, do you need God's help? Well, understand His transcendence of what a great God we have, that He's enthroned on high and He is worthy of all of our worship. And, and second, though, seek Him with humility because He looks with favor upon the humble. And he raises the poor from the dust and he, he lifts them from the ash heap. Well, I want to close this morning simply by reading Hannah's prayer for a son. 
Like this was Hannah's prayer after God gave her Samuel. Remember that uh, Elkanah was married to two women. Um, Hannah and Penina, I believe their names were. And she had children and Hannah didn't. And she was desperate. She was in the temple praying. And so much so that Eli the priest thought that she was, was drunk in how she was praying. She said, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just praying desperately for a child. God gave her Samuel and she gave Samuel back to the Lord. But here's her prayer. These themes of Psalm 113 are right here. Hannah prays this. In fact, let's, let's bow our heads. Why don't we just pray this prayer with Hannah? It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, if you want to look it up later. It says this, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. With Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, and those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she was many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord are, of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord shall be shattered against them. He will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the kings of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointing. And Father, I pray that you would convince us of these things. God, it is the, the poor and the needy and the lowly that you, you help. Lord, that we would be a church family filled with those who are, are humbly seeking You, humbly confessing our sins, humbly expressing our need, consistently crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, we don't come here because we're righteous, God. We come here because we are unrighteous and in need of Your favor. And so, Lord, I pray You would would help us in these things. And I pray for those here this morning who aren't, aren't believing and aren't trusting in You. I pray, Lord, that they would see, that You would open their hearts to see that it's not the, the great heritage. I think of all the children here in our church. It's not the great heritage of coming week in, week out, year in, year out in Rock Valley Bible Church because we stand on the Bible. How proud we are. God, I pray You protect our children from being Pharisees. God, but may we all be humble, submissive to you, and may you open our hearts to you, and may you fill them full like the barren woman you give children, and to the needy who you bring help, to the lowly who you lift up. So Lord, I, I pray that we would do that, that we as a church would be those who can indeed enjoy this hallelujah sandwich. It begins with praise and ends with praise, and we can worship you because you're the the great lifter of our souls, of our heads. Help us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.